0: Our next message is going to be brought first by Mr. Matthew Steele. His title is, Nothing sheltered hurt or Destroyed: Kingdom of God, Part 6. Thank you, Sean. Hello, everybody. Hope uh, we're all having a good Sabbath. It's good to see everybody. You know, Thinking this morning as I was uh, kind of uh, putting my message together, about when I was a lot younger. <clears throat> I, I, you know, I'm, I'm probably going to date myself and show some of you how young I am as well, right? Uh, but you know, when I was growing up in the 1970s and 1980s, which just seems like about five minutes ago. Uh, the area where I I lived was you know I I tell everybody I'm from Liverpool but it's just because it's easier right that's the the big city I was born there but I mostly grew up on the edge of the metro area and really in a fairly uh, rural part of of the area so just you know two minutes walk from my house and you could be in dairy farm areas wood and woods and this beautiful English countryside. And yet we were right on the edge of the metro, so we had the best of both worlds. There goes the explosion. And we have, you know, the, the, the best of both worlds. And I was thinking about that experience and that life that I had. And, you know, I, I had some challenges as all young people do, just some things that came into my life that weren't great. But overall lived a fairly safe life, you know. I could spend, I remember summer holidays, you know, summer from school, spending from dawn till dusk outside, you know, coming home for some food and then gone again, hanging out with my friends, going to the woods, climbing, getting into all kinds of trouble, not real bad trouble, but, you know, trying to see if you could jump from one tree to the next. You know, when you're 50 feet in the air, stuff like that. Really safe kind of activity, but really relatively safe. And when I was about 11 years old, I I got a job as a newspaper delivery boy. Anybody ever had that job? Yeah. And, uh, you know, in England, it's a little different from here. You know, everything's closer together. And so in in England, we'd have our our delivery bag, we'd have the newspapers, and we'd either walk or ride a bike. Mark, did you have a bike? You did? Yeah, I mostly had a bike, except maybe when I got a flat tire, and then I had to wait until I could afford to get a, a new inner tube or whatever. And so I would deliver these newspapers, and that was you know, five thirty, six o'clock in the morning, because you had to get all that done, get back home. Get ready for school, and so you really have to do it pretty pretty early and then in the evening the, the evening newspaper delivery, well, you know, depending on your route, you could be out for two hours and get back home maybe by six o'clock six thirty I'd do that uh, six thirty um, back then, I wasn't satisfied speaking so you know. But, I was thinking about that and that experience, never hassled, never in danger, uh, walking all over the place in the area delivering newspapers. About the only danger I came, you know, into contact with was the ferocious dogs on the other side of the door, as you're trying to put the newspaper in, it's like a shredder and they're just (laughs) I'm like, why do these people even buy a newspaper? You know, I, I, but even then, even though it's, you know, they're trying to get my fingers, right, as I'm pushing the last piece in. And even then, they they never got me. It was the little weenie dogs that bit me on the ankle. They're the ones that get you, and you have to look out for it. But it was really pretty safe. And then I got to thinking about, well, this is where I started reading newspapers. I kind of realized this this morning, because I don't read newspapers anymore. But well, I started reading newspapers when I was delivering them, you know, so I was the, the delivery boy walking down the street reading the newspaper, going to the next house. I thought about the things that I read in those newspapers. You know, there'd be all kinds of stories, right, your typical stuff. Corrupt politicians, burglaries, you know, local crime, uh, local, union you know, news of activities and uh, jumble sales and car boot sales and uh, all kinds of a mixture of of things in these newspapers. A little bit of international news. You know, it was the Cold War, right? Everybody remember the Cold War? Yeah, you can hide under a desk from a nuclear blast. Yeah, totally safe. So, thinking about these stories, And then I start to think about what I never saw in these stories. I never saw newspapers proclaiming Pride Month. I never saw that. There really wasn't, you know, often a a, a conversation about homosexuality then. If there was, it was normally in the context of some sort of scandal in, in the political sphere. That's about it. I never saw any articles about gender confusion. There were two genders back then. Apparently there's not two genders now, right? No, there are. It's just that back then we knew that there was just two genders. I never saw anywhere in a newspaper story about gender reassignment searches. I never saw anything about the increased suicide rate amongst teenagers based on the play, the man-made play, of gender dysphoria. Never saw any of that. So many things that I didn't see. I didn't see these extreme positions on abortion. I mean, abortion was, I think, available in England at that time. i not exactly sure. But there wasn't this extreme drive to make sure that that we could have as many abortions as possible. Right? Even by those that were for abortion, it wasn't such extremism. Never saw that. Wasn't mentioned. Most of my growing up I would, in school, attend assembly. And in assembly, it was church. We would open with prayer. Mark, do you remember that? We'd have prayer. We'd have hymns. We would sing some hymns in assembly, in school, all the students in the hall together. And that's in fact where I learned how, how great thou art, that hymn. I specifically remember that because I also specifically remember the teacher, the music teacher that taught of this, giving a testimony about how this pen uh, helped her in her life. And it was a Christian message. In school, and that pers- persisted until, well, until about halfway through high school. And then newer, better ideas about how to do school started to come in. And, of course, they don't mean it's better. All my growing up, that was just okay and normal. In England, there wasn't the, you know, the, the, uh, the volume of firearms. But we never saw in the newspapers about mass shootings in the United States. I just don't remember any of those, if there were. And we never really had anyone who was offended by our Christian service, our assembly, in high school, except there was one guy that we all thought was Muslim, and maybe I've mentioned this to you before, and he wouldn't attend assembly, and he was of African uh, descent, and so we thought, well, maybe he's Muslim, and, you know, that was just our assumption as kids. Well, it turns out his dad was a worldwide... Church of God minister And he didn't want his son in a, a nominal Sunday Christian kind of activity at church. <laughs> yeah. So, interesting. But still, he wasn't traumatized by it. He wasn't injured by it. Nobody was. The participation in that was not recorded in your grade. You know, it wasn't... You didn't have to do that to graduate. It was just, this is what we did in society because that's what we've always done in society and it was good for society. I'm not saying everything was better about the world in 1970, 1980. There were certainly lots of problems in the world. It's kind of ironic we're returning back to the high gas prices, right, and the inflation. It's kind of a cyclical nature to all of that. But it was a better world in many ways. It was not a world like we see today. The culture that we have today really can be described as a culture of death. It's a culture of death, it's a culture of destruction in so many different ways. And I was, I mean, I knew that there was going to be protests once the Supreme Court brought their decisions down. Uh, about Rosie Wade and, and some of the other more conservative decisions, but the backlash was shocking to me, and maybe to, to some of us, some of you as well. The vitriol and the, the errant passion that these individuals have towards eliminating human life. It's hard to understand. And I'm not talking about the really desperate, troubled women who feel that they have no choice in life, that have been abused and violated or, or have some other just disastrous thing going on in their life. I'm not I'm not talking about that. I'm just talking about the activists that are pushing a ideology. I don't know if you saw the picture, but there was a lady She must have been like eight months pregnant, and she wrote on her belly, not yet a human. I don't know if you've seen that picture. So what does it say about society when somebody is okay putting that on their stomach and and making it publicly available? And the greater question was, is that a commentary on her belief or on her We see no longer not yet human. Have we lost our humanity in society? So, thinking about all of this and just watching it, reading articles, looking at how the rest of the world responded to this, a scripture came to mind, and I think Ken may have mentioned this same scripture last week, I'm not too sure found in Romans chapter 1 and verse 28. And it says, even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased, or the old King James Version says, a reprobate mind. To do things which are not fitting, are not appropriate, are not right. And then Paul goes on to list some of the things Kind of the categories, right? Being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, deliciousness, full of envy and murder, strife and deceit, evil-mindedness, they are whisperers, they are backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things disobedient to parents, undiscerning and untrustworthy, unloving, unforgivable, unmerciful, who, knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. And, you know, I, I think I've touched upon these scriptures a fair amount in this series, that I'm doing on the kingdom of God because it's it's hard to, to not talk about some of the things in the kingdom of man when you're trying to talk about the kingdom of God because we're trying to show how different the kingdom of God really will be. And I think it's important for us to realize it because we are living in the pot that's getting warmed and boiled and it's so easy for us to miss some of these things and not recognize some of these things that take place around us and what God's perspective would be like. So this to me is a formula. It's not a formula to do something. It's a, it's a formula to not do something. Because when we remove God out of our thinking, out of our reasoning. It's, it's a thinking process. It's a reasoning process. When we remove God out of our minds, we become reprobate. We become, our minds become dysfunctional, not capable of recognizing good behavior from bad. I don't even need to say it, do I? We see it all the time. We see it all the time. Now, it's also important for us, I think, to remember that this can and does happen to us as well. If we remove God out of parts of our lives, then our lives in those areas will become reprobate, undiscerning, we'll lose the ability to have a godly perspective. So, let's not sit here in judgment of the world and say that we're okay. We need to be careful and understand and make sure that this applies to us as well. So we end up with this disqualified, unapproved, in a sense insufficient for the task mind. And we do certainly see that in the world today. And it seems like somebody has just put a brick on the accelerator and we're getting faster and faster in some of those things. A human mind, apart from God, has no other place to go except where we see it today. And worse. Paul says that our minds will sink into unrighteousness, evil-mindedness, evil thinking, counter to God thinking, counter to logic thinking. I mean, it, it, it's so ridiculous to try and have the argument, isn't it about gender? It's evident it's self-evident and yet supposedly educated people will just look at you straight in the eyes and they have lost their mind. Well that's exactly what Paul is talking about. They have lost the ability to reason and see truth. And, you know, there's also the other element there, too, which for all the claim of inclusiveness, they are unloving and unforgiving and unmerciful in so many different ways. So to put it another way, fall back into a corrupt way of thinking in things like the sexual revolution, which drove the ideology towards abortion. We have abortion itself, which drives a dehumanization of human beings. If you're only a human being, did you manage to make it out of the womb alive? then we can start to redefine that even further, can't we? If you're not a human life when you're in the womb, uh, but we decide when you are a human life, then we can decide, well, you're not a human life when maybe you're too old, or too incapable, or too handicapped, uh, too infirm. That would never happen, right? It's happened. We went to war against the people that fell into that. It has happened. And it has happened over and over again. This is the direction that we go when we remove God from our thinking. And we think that we can maintain this. I even remember hearing, I think a couple of years ago, Richard Dawkins. Does anybody know Richard Dawkins? You know... He is just an ardent atheist. He's an evangelist for atheism. And even he was quoted as being worried about the decline of the Judeo-Christian values in the world. Yeah. Because it's the underpinning of our entire society. And we think we can remove God from our thinking. And we're going to be just fine. We can still self-govern. Paul repeats this in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 17. He says, This I say, therefore, and testify unto the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the nations, the Gentiles, walk in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened. How did they get their understanding darkened? How did they get to be futile in their mind? They were alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness, to work all oh, uncleanness with greediness. But you have not so learned Christ. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust and be renewed in the spirit of your mind that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Again, I think Paul is warning us in this. Let's not just look at the world and say, here's the prime example of, of what happens when you remove God. It is, but let's not sit thinking, well, we're all okay. We have to be alert to the fact that our minds are being affected. Our minds are being affected by what we see in the media, what we read in the newspaper, or whatever web platform we're using. It is being affected. Is it knocking God a little further out of our mind. something that we really have to think about. But there is good news. There is good news. Because there is a better world than we see today on the way. There is a new world on the way. It's a world that stands in complete contrast to the world that we see around us. It is a world that, that we might even find a little strange to initially live in. Because although we read the scriptures and we look for that country to come here, for that world to come here, we've not lived in it. It is going to be new, and different, and shocking in many ways. We find a description of this world in so many places, so many beautiful passages. I picked for for today in this this sermon, Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11, and it it runs really through uh, verse 1 through 16. And it says this, There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The spirit of the Lord God shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge, and the spirit of the fear of the Lord. So interesting here, at the start of this prophetic passage that we see, the first thing that's in there is the knowledge of the Lord. That's what gets gets us to the new world that's coming. That's what makes the new world possible, is a reestablishment in our minds, in all minds, of the knowledge of the Lord. Significantly different from what we see today. But I have a question. Do we practice this now? Do we practice it now? And the way that we practice this now is the way that God will practice it in the future, if we're we're aligned with Him. Is that we will talk about it with our children. We'll talk about it amongst one another. We'll talk about how the kingdom of God is different, how it will function, we'll explore together, and specifically with our children, the knowledge of God. We have to do that. We can't just look at this and say, yep, we believe this, we're going to arrive in that new world. We have to live it now as though we're already there. Sharing it with our children sharing it with one another. So, in the vein of that, because we sometimes, you know, have a habit in preaching to assume that everybody knows the underlying basis of what we're talking about. Well, and we all know this. And we all know that. And then we move on to our next point. I'm going to take us through something pretty rudimentary because there may be somebody here who doesn't really know this. So I want to ask you a question from this passage that I just read here. There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse and a branch shall grow out of its roots. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. Who is this person? So, I heard two different answers. Isn't that interesting? So, for those of you that said Jesus, how do you know it's Jesus? Huh? <laughs> well, that's, that's deductive reasoning. Yeah. Okay. But, but there is a way of knowing, from Scripture, who this is, as a capital H. Uh, well, okay, it's possible. We have to know the Scripture, Right? And we all get to the habit of saying, oh, yeah, yeah, I, I just know this. I mean, there's plenty of things we just know, right? We, we just know how to do, I don't know, multiplication or long division. Well, maybe I don't know how to do long division. There are things that we've just learned, and then we don't even remember where we learned them from, but we just know them. But it's really important for us to be able to articulate to the world who this is. It's important for us to know how we know this. How did we arrive at this? So here's my approach, and you guys might have a better approach. So we need to firstly understand the origin of this person because it says that they stem from that they come forth from a guy by the name of Jesse. Well, who's Jesse? David's father. How do we know that? From scripture. So, 1 Samuel chapter 16. So remember, uh, Samuel had already ordained a rather good looking but useless king named Saul, right? Does that remind you of any politicians that we've had in the past? So, he. He's ordained him, you know, he, he anointed him, he's been king for a while, and Samuel is grieved by this, because Saul is just a mess. And there's lots of lessons to be learned in that story. But then we get down to God is preparing the next king. So, this is going to be the more like the king that, that God wants. At least, to start. Because he's like all men. So, in verse 1, it says, Now the Lord said to Samuel, who was the prophet at the time, the senior prophet at the time, over Israel, How long will you mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? But just get over it. It's done. He's not the guy that's going to found this lineage of, of kingship. Fill your horn with oil and go, and I will send you to Jesse.'" the Bethlehemite, for I have provided myself a king amongst his sons. And Samuel said, how can I go? Because if Saul hears hears it, he will kill me. Samuel, God is telling you to go do this. And you're scared of Saul? But the Lord said, okay, fine, we'll make an excuse for you to go. Take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice for the Lord. Then invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you shall do. You shall anoint for me one of the one that I named to you. So Samuel did what the Lord said and went to Bethlehem and the elders of the town trembled at his coming and said, do you come peacefully? He has a bit of a reputation, right? I don't want to mess with this guy. And he said, Peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Sanctify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. So it was when they came that he looked at Elab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or his physical stature, because I have refused it don't look at his appearance and his size and how he is externally, right? Don't look at him that way. God has a different way of looking. God has a different way of looking, and we'll, we'll get into that in a little bit later. So don't do it that way. So Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. I wonder if it was kind of like a, one of those fashion shows where prospective kings are moving by, you know. And they're all trying to make themselves look like the best. The best for the, for the job. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And then Jesse made Shammah pass by. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And thus, Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. And Samuel said to Jesse, Are all the young men here? And he said, Well, there remains the runt of the weather, the youngest, and, uh, well, he's only good for keeping sheep. And he's keeping sheep. And Samuel said to him, Stand and bring him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. And so he stands and brought him in, and he was ruddy with bright eyes, and okay, he was good looking. And the Lord said, "Arise, anoint him, for this is the one, the younger. We just love that story, right? Feeds into our like all the underdog stories that we've ever ever heard of. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. And so Samuel arose and went to Ramah. So, we don't have time today to to look at all of what's in here, because there's a lot going on here and a lot of meaning, but this shepherd, this youngest son of Jesse, would go on to become Israel's greatest king. He was the greatest king. Now, some would point to Solomon and maybe that he was the greatest king, but he failed big time at the end, sadly. David, I think, is Israel's greatest king. He led armies. He defeated enemies of Israel and of God. He expanded the nation. He established Jerusalem as the capital of the nation. Without David and and his exploits and, of course, God with him, doing all of that through him, Jerusalem wouldn't be the city that it is today. Which sometimes you might think, well, maybe that would have been good. But it still would have been another city. He was a warrior. He was a poet. He was a great king. And he was a fallen man. He was all those things. He was a mixture, a mixed bag, just like every single one of those. He made bad choices. I remember the first time when I read the story of how he just killed this guy by sticking him in front of the line so he could cover up his own sin and then steal the guy's life. I'm like, how in the world was he allowed to stay killed? That's a hard story. That's a difficult story. But yet, he was a king, as God said, was after his own heart. Is the new kingdom of God then going to be built by this guy? Anybody? helped by this guy. So this guy is dead. Now we know there's going to be a resurrection. But is that who the prophet is talking about when he said there's a root of justice? Okay. Okay. Isaiah gives us another clue. He says in Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his His name shall be called Wonderful. Counselor. Mighty God. Everlasting Father. The Prince of Peace. Is that David? No. David's not Mighty God. He may have been good looking, but he wasn't wonderful. He's not the Mighty Counselor or the Prince of Peace. God called him a bloody man, a man of war and battle. And it's not to say that Jesus isn't going to do some similar things, but David is not the prince of peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Think about that for a second. That's something we have never, ever experienced in the history of mankind. I mean, maybe for small snapshots of, of a period of time here, living in some of the Western countries for the last 50 or 70 years, we've experienced peace. But nothing like this. There will be no end to the growth, the expansion of his kingdom and of peace. Upon the throne of David, and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Just a beautiful passage, right, and inspirational, and we long for this to be manifest, to be true, to be real here. So this great king, this root and rod of Jesse, is a descendant of David, but not David himself. He's also a warrior king, and he is going to bring in a world, a better world, that will never end, that will never cease to expand. How does that work? There will never be an end to this kingdom. In Matthew chapter 1 and uh, verses 1 through 17, we have the genealogy of Jesus. And this was to Carolyn's point earlier. This is what defines it from a scriptural perspective. Now, it's, uh, it's kind of boring to read it. It's more fun to sing it. I thought maybe Ken could come up and sing Matthew's Begat. I'm kidding. <laughs> but if you remember from the Behold the Land concert, we have the song Matthew's Begat. And it says, Abraham, not Isaac. Isaac begat Jacob. And Jacob begat Judah and his brothers. And Judah begat Perez and Zerah. By Tamar and Perez begat Hezron. Hezron begot Ram. Ram begot Amminadab. Aminadab begot Nashon. Nashon begot Solomon. Solomon begot Boaz. Boaz begot Obed by Ruth. Obed begot Jesse. And Jesse begot David, who we know as king. David, the king, begot Solomon. By Dejariah's wife, as the song goes, and Solomon begot Rehoboam. Rehoboam begot Abijah. And Abijah begot Asa. And Asa begot Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat begot Joram. Joram begot Uzziah. Uzziah begot Jotham. Jotham begot Ahaz. And Ahaz begot Hezekiah. Hezekiah begot Manasseh, who was a real piece of work. And Manasseh begot Amon. And Amon begot Josiah. Love the story of Josiah. A Christological story. A redemption story. A story that makes us look forward even more to the kingdom of God. Josiah begot Jeconah and his brothers, and about the time when they were carried away into Babylon. And after they were brought to Babylon, Jeconiah uh, begot And Sheltiel begot Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel begot Abiad and Abayad begot Eliakim. And Eliakim begot Azor, and Azor begot Zadok. Zadok begot Achim. Achim begot Eliad. Eliad begot Eliezer. Eliezer begot Mathen. Mathen begot Jacob. And Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary. From whom was born Jesus? And of course, we have another lineage as well through through Mary's line, but also comes from David. So, who is the root and the rod? Who is the branch from Jesse? It is Jesus Christ the son of David, the descendant of David, the one whom the Spirit of the Lord rests upon. Remember when David was anointed, it says the Holy Spirit, Spirit of the Lord, came on David and dwelt on him and in him throughout the rest of his life in all the good and in all the bad. Same is true for Jesus In Luke chapter 4 and verse 14, after being tempted by Satan for 40 days and 40 nights, defeating him at every turn, Jesus returns to, in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And news of him went through all the surrounding region, and he taught in the synagogue, being glorified by all. So he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and his, as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. Now, think about that. Was he just randomly handed it? Or was somebody directed to give him this book? And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me." powerful version. Because he has anointed me to, to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty <coughs> to the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. The year of tribulation. I long to see that year of Can he close the book? gave it back to the attendant, sat down. And all the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed upon him, and he began to say, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in the Man, it would have been good to be there, to see that, to hear that. And so we understand from these scriptures who is the rod? Who's that branch from Jesse? Who is that one that is going to bring in a new world, a better world? So going back to Isaiah chapter eleven and verse one, it says, There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, a branch shall grow out of his roots. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding Spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. And as I mentioned before, the the principle, this, this prescription for how you get to a better world is through the knowledge of the Lord. Having that in our minds, having that in our hearts, that's how a better world is made. Is the light. Is in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge by the sight of his eyes, nor decide by the hearing of his ears. Have we ever had a human leader that didn't judge this way? All of our leaders judge this way. Most of us judge this way. Right? By what we can see, what we can test, what we can hear We've never had a judge, never had a king that judges from the heart. Not in the kingdom of man. Even David. Even King David. Even Solomon in all his wisdom. He had to use this external information. And and maybe by chance, if the Spirit of God was moving in someone, we could make a discernment through the Spirit. But our leaders don't use the spirit. But Jesus has demonstrated this. He demonstrated it to us back in, in Matthew chapter nine, verses one through eight, when he healing, healing the paralytic. You remember that story? He's getting ready to heal, and what does he hear? And he hears the hearts and the minds of those that are watching. It says, so he got into a boat and crossed over, and he came to his own city. And then, behold, they brought him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, be of good cheer; Your sins are forgiven you. And at once, some of the scribes said within themselves, This man blasphemes. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your heart? how would it be like to have a ruler Lord. that knows the thoughts of our hearts? Scary? We've never lived under that in, 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 a, in, a, in a world like this, in an environment like this. Of course, we, we do live under that if we have a relationship with Jesus Christ. If we are communing with God the Father through prayer, but to have a global leader on the earth that knows exactly what you're coming to ask for before you even get in the car to drive to the palace. Think about that. He says, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, arise and walk? Which is easier? Which is easier to do? That's the real question in here, isn't it? Which is easier to say? But the bigger question is, which is easier for Jesus to do? Healing somebody didn't cause him pain. Forgiving somebody of their sins cost him a But so which is easier? But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, "Arise, take up your bed, and go to your house." And he arose, departed to his house. And when the multitude saw it, they marveled and glorified God, who had given such power to men. Well, to a man in Christ. He sees into the hearts of men and women, and that's something that no human king has ever done. Turn back to Isaiah 11, verse 4. He says, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity. Well, there's the word that we've been hearing a lot about. Equity. We've got to have equity, and everybody's got to be equal, and we all have to have equality of outcome, which is why I've got lots of politicians that espouse this knocking on my door giving me cash every single day. From their own bank account. Are you guys getting some of that too? No. Equity for the meat of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips. He shall slay the wicked. Well, that's not a New Testament teaching, right? Jesus is the nice member of the God family. He's not supposed to do mean things even to wicked people. Why would he do that? Well, because something about this new world that's coming, this new world that we remember will have no end. Peace in that world will have no end. The wicked cannot be allowed to disrupt that anymore. Are we included in that number? No. The word wicked here really means the criminal-minded. The devious criminal that is conspiring to do the kinds of things that we see wicked criminals doing every day in this world. That's what he's really talking about here. He's not talking about you and I making mistakes, missing the mark, doing our best, but missing the mark. We're we're not talking about people that get themselves in trouble and make bad choices, thinking that that's the way to go. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the wicked that seek to undermine the kingdom of God. Isaiah continues, Righteousness shall be the belt of his loins, faithfulness the belt of his waist. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and the, a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, the young one shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole, and the wean child shall to put his hand in the vipers' den. We've all heard many of the different interpretations of this. Uh, You know, some saying that it's talking about, it's only talking about nation states and people that act like predators, preying on those that are weak. And that it's not talking about the animal kingdom. I've heard that. I personally believe it's better. And this kind of goes a little bit to what Red was talking about earlier. You you read part of the scripture that I'm going to read because there is a change coming in the world. It is going to be complete and radical, and sometimes it's a little hard for us to understand. But even the nature of animals is going to change. I believe that it's both. Predators of every kind will not be permitted. Sexual predators, organized crime predators, bullies, dictators, left-wing, right-wing predators, individuals, terror groups, corporations, nation-states that are predatory are no longer going to be allowed to prey on them. It will not be allowed. The entire world All of creation is going to be radically changed. And we just have a glimpse of what that is going to look like. Just a little bit of an insight. And we get that from that very short period of time at the beginning of this whole story of God's interaction with man in Genesis, in the garden, in the very beginning. In Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26, To pick up the story, uh, the creation story, after all the animals have been made, and then God turns to make man. And he says, God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, He created them. Male and female, He created them. Huh. There's those two genders there. The knowledge of God. Very straightforward. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish and over the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, See, I have given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed, and it shall be uh, for food for us, for mankind. Also, he says, to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth, in which there is life, I have given every green herb for food. So it was not just mankind that was vegetarian. Sorry, guys, I know you like the hamburgers with the cheese and the steaks the lamb chops. But it says that the animals and the, the creepy things, the spiders and All the critters that were on the earth and in the sea were all vegetarian, herbivores. And we're thinking, have you seen the teeth on a lion? That doesn't seem to be designed for that. I don't know what changes happened. If there was changes, I don't know. But what I do know is that God gave vegetables, plant life for us to live on. And something changed after the fall of man. After we doomed the planet. God saw everything that he had made. And indeed, it was very good. It was good. It was really good. I want to ask you a question, though. You're looking along in your Bibles. As I was reading through the list of things that God said to man that he should do, be fruitful and multiply, and spread over the earth, and have dominion over the birds, and over the fish, and and everything that creeps on the earth, there's something that's missing. What is not listed there that man is supposed to have dominion over? Mankind. We were never supposed to have dominion over each other. It doesn't even say Adam's the boss of Eve. I mean, we know that was the case. But <laughs> okay. It doesn't say Eve is the boss of man, of Adam, right? Who is king over it? God is king. So, when we get all the way through everything that's going to happen on this earth, all the prophecies, when we get all the way through to the end of days and the establishment of the kingdom of God, we're going to arrive right back at where it all began, only this time we're going to do it differently. And it's going to be that new world, the kingdom of God. Isaiah continues, verse 11 I in chapter 11, verse 9. And they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. My holy kingdom. Why? Why will they not hurt or destroy in all of this holy kingdom? For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters fill. retain God in our mind. To retain the knowledge of God in our mind. That is how that kingdom will function and operate. And anyone that tries to break that, the wicked that would try to undermine that, will be eliminated. We have that from the Word of God. And in that day, there shall be a root of justice. He will stand as a banner to the people for the nations will seek him and his resting place will be glorious.